Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Today I am joined by a physical therapist whose approach to manual therapy has evolved to consider biopsychosocial influences as well as incorporating shared decision making between clinician and patient. Walt Fritz, it's an absolute pleasure to be spending some time with you today. How are you and how's New York treating you? You're in NYC, right? Uh, no, I'm in, I'm in um, upstate New York, which is about six hours from New York City. So where I live and what I'm looking out my window at right now does not resemble Manhattan at all. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, but it's fine here. The weather's great. We're, you know, not as hot as you were, but um, I'm doing well. Thanks. And thanks for having me here, Alexa. I really appreciate it. I've been following your podcast for a long time now. So it's a, it's a, it's a real privilege to be here. Oh, brilliant. And thank you for coming on. We, we so appreciate it. Um, yeah. I'm going to start with kind of a big question and ask you what actually is manual therapy and how have your opinions changed from when you first started as a physical therapist? Oh boy. Yeah. Ask the hard question first or the one that's going to consume or has been consuming the last 10 years of my life. What is manual therapy? Um, manual therapy is basically touch based therapy. Um, ask 10 clinicians what manual therapy is, you're going to get 20 different answers because there's no perfectly defined answer. To some people, manual therapy is sort of codified um, manipulation, joint manipulation, adjustments, aggressive osteopathic or chiropractic type interactions. To others, manual therapy, to, like to me, is a more subtle type of intervention. Massage is manual therapy. Myofascial release, which is my modality of, of um, origin in physical therapy, is manual therapy. There are, there's got to be hundreds of, of different names and of groups and subgroups of, of manual therapy schools and camps and tribes and um, and cults, if you will, um, that really draw the consumer and draw the clinician into these rabbit holes of belief that I can select a certain tissue in the body that's that's acting faulty or there's a pathology and and then we can selectively treat that. Um, you're hearing some of my my cynical bias come through already because I was trained that it's all about the connective tissue, the fascia. And for 20 years, I did nothing but think fascia was king and fascia was forgotten and fascia was how I was able to impact my patients. And then my evolution started that I saw the started to see the flaws in that logic. Um, so to me, manual therapy is touch-based intervention. No matter how we do it, it's manual therapy. Mm -hmm. And you've spoken quite notably, actually, with the Naked Vocalists and with Vocal Health Education about the importance of patient perspective and values. So why do you think that that's crucial in your work? So before I answer that question, let me answer, let me just look at the, 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 un, the, the traditional narrative in laryngeal manipulation, which is basically, it was introduced in 1990 to, for muscle tension dysphonia. And various permutations of that continue to evolve today, where it's basically um, seeing the problem as too much muscle tension within the laryngeal region, as well as um, excessive height of the larynx, et cetera. Um, and the, therapist, the clinician, however we want to term that person, 
acts as the expert and basically manipulates that that structure, the tissue, to lower the muscle tension, um, help improve what is seen as improper laryngeal height with the thought that they can make a lasting change in laryngeal height. Um, and then to say, see, it was too much muscle tension because now you can talk or sing better. And that works. The evidence, there's no doubt, there's a lot of evidence to support that. I call it, I'm, I'm trying to evolve from the word aggressive to assertive because aggressive is pejorative. I think laryngeal manipulation is aggressive when it's performed on me because I don't like that level of um, threat coming into my nervous system. But a lot of people really appreciate that more aggressive, assertive touch um, and benefit from it. Unfortunately, when you go to see a clinician who specializes in um, this sort of work, that's what they do. They apply an aggressive, assertive um, type of intervention with almost no input from the patient. It's basically hold on to your chair because I'm going to wank your larynx around until the muscle tension is reduced. It now doesn't that feel better type of thing. And after the patient or the client stops sweating and stops fearing of what's going to happen when they tear your larynx out, it's like, yeah, I guess I can talk better. Now, again, I my bias is clear. I don't like aggressive work. So my entry into manual therapy has been a gentler, more sustained type of input. And that's how I apply work with my patients head to toe, but also how I evolved into the voice and swallowing field with um, voice and speech pathologist um, type in or, or clinicians. And it's about allowing the touch to be slower, nuanced, and received by the patient in a, in a more safe way. Um, there's so much evidence out there to show that our work is not about what we do to the tissue, but it's about what we do with the person and their nervous system, their expectations, their fears, those psychosocial factors that you alluded to in your introduction of me are a lot more important that I don't think are given the credit they're due in traditional, more assertive ways of manipulating the larynx. So the reason I chose that is, well, some of it is because that's how I was trained. That's how I was trained to give it as well as to receive it. And over the last basically 10 years, I've been trying to figure out, can we explain a different way to engage a person with, with voice disorders? Um, in, in a different way, in a different, in a manner that allows them more input. Um, I could bore the hell out of you, Alexa, and tell you the studies that talk about the, the peripheral tissues as mere receptors that go up to the brain and allow the brain and the nervous system and, and the behaviors of a person to begin to, to, to create change back to the periphery versus the thought that there's a problem in the tissues that we need to remediate. Mm, mm, interesting. And when you talk about your bias there, do you think that taking this patient perspective is a way out of following bias? Yeah, um, yes, but. Um, because yes, I'd like to think it's a, it's a totally unbiased way to allow the patient to make decisions, but yet they're walking into my room and I, I can't avoid, I can't get rid of, no matter how hard we try, none of us can get rid of our biases and, and our experiences and everything that drives that. So to say I'm totally unbiased um, because the patient's allowed to choose would be disingenuous. It's not true. Um, for the most part, I, I don't manipulate. I don't do aggressive manipulation unless somebody really seems to want that. And I'm, I'm willing to negotiate that with them. So I guess I can rid myself of some of my bias by allowing myself to negotiate with them. But none of us are bias free. So, you know, um, I think we're lying to ourselves if we think that we're 
the evidence that we follow is totally clean and totally without that that sense of bias and silo based type of views that we view things so mm. and some individuals may find it quite difficult to communicate what it is that they're feeling in a way to guide you yeah they just know it doesn't feel quite right or they need more or they need less so how yeah. do you help them and therefore what could a singing teacher take from that to help somebody make sense of their sensations in a way that communicates to you what intervention you might need to try next? My approach is all about the feeling of an issue, which to some people, they've got it immediately. And other people look at me like I have three heads. And when I say, what is your, what is your voice? What is your tongue tension? What does your, your voice fatigue feel like to you? Because they may be so, so cued into what it sounds like to them or others that what does it feel like? And in my trainings where I'm training speech pathologists and voice coaches how to do this work, to me, the touch-based manual therapy is the easy part. Getting the patient to understand and be a complete part of the process is truly the challenge of this work. And it's not easy. It's not easy with my voice patients. It's not easy with my back pain patients because I basically see head-to-toe patients. But it's about getting them to understand that, yes, I could apply a model that I where I think... I'm that I'm going to apply what I think is best, but I'd much rather apply something that they think is best or that we mutually agree upon through shared decision-making. It's about empowering the patient. And sometimes it's a quick process, Alexa. Sometimes it takes it takes a long time. And sometimes it's a process that's never totally embraced by my client or patient. Some patients basically fire me and go and hire somebody who will do that, basically the operator style of intervention where the, the clinician is the expert and they'll basically do what is best for the patient. And I'm fine letting go of that person because I'd much rather have a, a partner in this, in this relationship than, you know, own a dictatorship in, in my studio here. Um, so how do I get it? Is it's, it's unique for every individual. For, for instance, if you had a voice issue, I would ask, well, when does it manifest? How does it, when does it, when do you feel it? Is it the beginning of a performance? Is it the end? Where, where do you feel it? Where do you note it? Is there a spot in your body that seems to be the culprit? And that's where I would start to get you involved in the process. And my ideal um, scenario is when you, Alexa, could literally point to an area um, floor of mouth, base of tongue, where you say, this gets so sore, so tight, or so fatigued, whatever words you choose, because as soon as you can localize that, we can go from macro to micro, micro and begin to talk about, oh, you know, the touch, does your touch impact it at all? It's, it's not a, um, a perfectly defined protocol on how to get patient buy-in, um, but it's, a un it's unique for every scenario and situation. But I'm guessing that's exactly what it is with your, you know, the, the, your listeners, their interaction. It's never a rote protocol. It's a unique interaction with every individual we see. Mm. I remember speaking to uh, Robert Susuma uh, on this podcast, and he was also on one of our Focus on events recently. And he was talking about how sometimes awareness is enough for there to be change made as a result. Exactly, exactly. But I'd be really interested to know when you are hands on with somebody, what actually is it that you feel underneath your hands when yeah. in manipulation? Yeah. So I've coined a term that um, the thing that I feel is frozen chicken. Okay, the thing that I feel 
our crud pockets, the thing that I feel are little crappy areas, our dense areas, our tightness areas. And I use these foolish sounding adjectives, et cetera, to describe what I feel in a purposeful effort not to pathologize you additionally. The reason being, okay, so you go to a massage therapist or a physiotherapist, whoever you see for this kind of work, and you know, they, they, we feel things, how I define that is often based on how I was trained. For instance, um, you may have what vocal tension, okay? And your therapist might say, oh, feel all that tension in the muscle. Well, okay, muscles are in there, but muscles don't decide on their own to have a bad day or a bad week or a bad lifetime, right? Something drives that muscle to go into tension or contraction um, in the central nervous system, in a person's priors, a, a lovely term from psychology, a person's priors that drive that um, present day problem. So when I touch your throat, if that's what we're touching, you know, I'm, if you ask me the question that you ask your massage therapist, well, what is it? What are you feeling? I have to say something that sounds smart or you will lose faith in me, correct? If I say, gee, uh, Alexa, I don't really know. Okay, let's tick this one off. I'm going to go to somebody who does know. But what I want to do is try and instill in you that it could be the inferior constrictors. It could be, you know, um, tension within a nerve that has simply not let go from a past trauma. It could be a top-down type of problem from a lot of issues in your past and present. And what I'd like to do is give you, my patient, enough intelligence-sounding possibilities to not lose faith in me. But then what I want to do is turn that conversation around and say, it could be the muscle or the nerve, but what do you feel right now? Mm. Do you feel that what we're doing has any potential impact? Do you feel that any threat from what I'm doing? Do you feel if that what I'm doing could be helpful for this voice problem? And if not, help me help you to figure out what might be. So I call them, I call it frozen chicken. I call it crud pockets. I called it all these things to, to not give you the thought that, oh my gosh, here's something else that's wrong with me that nobody has said before, which is how we are. I used to call everything a fascial restriction, a, a restriction, a, a, a problem within your connective tissue, which is the fascia. And that's a real popular term, not just in the, in the vocal massage therapy field, but in the massage therapy and phys physical therapy field in general. Myofascial release has created this, this belief that we can find things in your body that even your doctor doesn't know about, which is a, which is a load of crap, okay? Um, first of all, nobody's ever proven that fascia restrictions exist or that trigger points exist. And even if it's muscle tension, what does that really mean? Define it, define how it got there and define how I, an expert, can reach through your skin, through the connective tissue, through the nerves, through your awareness, through your fears and expectations and select that muscle for intervention to the exclusion of everything else. I think it's, it's just, it's laughable, but yet it's what the public believes that you need to fix this muscle in me. Mm. Why is it so powerful to have that human to human contact? Mm. Oh gosh, there's so much good literature out there, um, not just in the manual therapy field, but in the field of, of psychology and and other fields that that touch the affective nature of touch, affective with an A, right? 
how we can be influential to be trusted, to, to, to feel caring, um, to tap into aspects of interoception, which is a really cool concept. Interoception is, is our ability to self-regulate, right? Me touching you, the research shows, if I do it in, in a gentle way that feels nurturing and soothing and potentially useful, can actually sort of turn on aspects of your, your nervous system and, and your cognitive behavioral um, factors that can actually help to mitigate issues with you doing the work instead of me doing the work. And I'm sort of just a placeholder. Um, I'm, I'm actually just a surrogate applying a touch that you find useful. When I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a lot of the, my writing lately has been to look at these multiple ways that touch is impactful. And it's almost, it's almost unlimited the number of ways that we can say that touch is impactful beyond what we think we're doing to the tissues. I, I just, I find it so fascinating that the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know all the answers yet. When 15 years ago, I knew all the answers, but they were wrong answers or they were incredibly limited and myopic answers. And I just, part of my work and whether it's the classes I teach, the writings that I do, et cetera, is to let people know that there is so much uncertainty in why manual therapy, why touch is impactful beyond that simple story of your muscles tense, let's manipulate it. A lot of your listeners are singing teachers, vo voice coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas I'm a, a, in the United States, I'm a licensed physical therapist, which imparts upon me the license to touch, the license to do these manual therapies. In the United States, a voice coach isn't licensed to touch in this way. And there becomes a legality question, an ethic question, a scope of practice question of, well, are we able to touch as a part of our work? And when I talk to voice coaches, and I'm just going to use that phrase for now, it, to, and I don't mean to minimize anybody else's title, but when I talk to voice coaches, there's a, there's sort of the general consensus that they're allowed to touch with permission in an appropriate way for touch-based cueing, right? And I'm going to give an example. Somebody, um, the, the, the voice coach feels that a person's problems might be due to their head and neck posture. So they might, with permission, touch a person's chin and sort of push back a little bit to tell them to get their head and neck in, in more proper alignment. That that's often viewed as an acceptable way of touching a person within the scope of practice boundaries of a voice coach. The same thing might apply to shoulders, right? Let's get your shoulders back and down. And, and it, again, every, every culture is different. Every country is different. Every person is different. Is that allowed or is that not allowed? But the view that touching a person's shoulders to get them back and down is very different than doing the various sorts of manual therapies to get those shoulders back and down or touching of doing something with someone um, within their tissues to get their head to stay in proper alignment, right? Um, but yet, when you start to look at the evidence that's out there for touch, that when we touch, it doesn't have to be in a certain way that I was taught in order to be impactful. I was taught that if I don't hold a stretch, and let's just call it pressure on someone's chin here, for a minimum of a minute and a half or so, then I'm not affecting the fascia, right? Other people say, oh no, it's gotta be much longer. You need to hold that stretch for a significant period of time to start to create changes within the structure, right? Um, when you're talking to an exercise-based um, interventionist, they'll say, well, until you strengthen that tissue, change is never gonna be really impactful. But 
So let's just compare you touching someone's chin, assuming it's appropriate, and, and pushing back slightly and say, get your head and neck in proper alignment. You might view any, any gains that are made as your touch tapping into the person's brain where they can begin to say, oh, when I get my head and neck back like this, my voice does sound different. And I was taught that when I hold a, a lasting stretch for uh, at the chin for a, for a period of time, that the person begins to feel a very similar change. And But when we start looking at the true evidence for what happens when we touch, that's, that's sort of removed from the tissues. I, I, my premise is that your touch-based cueing and my long, um, slow duration stretch may not be quite as different as a lot of people view it. That it's the person who's perceiving that input and then taking over with changes versus the tissues themselves being the receiver of those changes. And I know I kind of zigzag back and forth with this, but my point in bringing this up is the touch-based cueing that a voice coach might be legally allowed to do may not be different at all in terms of whole person impact than the manual therapy or the massage-based input that I might do as a person licensed to do that. And a lot of people really bristle at that because that's not how we're taught change happens. That's because we're so keyed into um, the rabbit hole, this, the historical narrative of how our work works. And people are so slow to embrace the more modern interpretations of how manual therapy, how behavioral-based intervention, how exercise-based intervention truly works from multifactorial perspectives. It brings me on to actually ask about this, the idea of the multidisciplinary team. And we know how effective that is, that we have people from lots of different um, areas coming together to help somebody. Do you foresee a time when singing teachers and vocal coaches will be offering manual therapy as part of their normal service? Uh, you know, that's interesting because in the UK, I think there's some question about, I can't quite remember your phrasing versus the phrasing over here about, let me, I'm just going to call it the legality of it, right? Is it, are you allowed to do it? Um, are you allowed to touch? Let's get that off the table first. Are you allowed to touch? And if you're being encouraged not to because of, of safety concerns, et cetera, um, I don't know whether you will start um, in fully embracing that as a part of your domain. I you know, when I teach in the UK, I get a fair amount of voice coaches coming to the classes. And, and what I say is basically you need to decide from a legal and ethical perspective, does your scope of practice, does your, you know, the bylaws of your profession, whatever it is in the UK, you know, are you allowed to do it? And if so, you know, then I, I see it as okay as doing it. There's a lot of wrangling I know right now from a few of my contacts in the UK who are trying to figure out is it okay to do this even if we teach it to you? Even if we say, okay, you are now certified is not the word. I don't know what the word is in the UK, but um, does that make it okay? And and I can't answer that question for you, nor do I try here in the States, you know, for a speech pathologist, for instance, or a licensed massage therapist or licensed physical therapist, there's no no question about it. In the United States, I know a number of voice coaches who've gone back for, for instance, a, a massage therapy certification and therefore a licensure. So there's no grayness around the legality of them using this work. You know, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of effort to do that, but many have found it um, worthwhile. And I know a number of voice coaches in the United States who um, aren't licensed or regulated or certified in the United States, but use it anyway to good effect. 
I, I don't tell them, yeah, it's okay to do that. I, I, it's, it's about you as an individual looking at your personal responsibilities and ethics. Is it okay for you to do that? There will be people looking into how to become a, um, a laryngeal masseuse or doing some manual therapy. So right. it asks the question, what does it actually take to be a manual therapist? Oh gosh. Okay, so I can't answer the question in the UK. In the in the United States, a manual therapist, there is no such designation in terms of a title or licensure. I, as a physical therapist, can legally use manual therapy. A massage therapist, you know, under their licensure, can use manual therapy. A speech pathologist, it's the same thing. I right now in my in my current education model, I'm teaching primarily speech pathologists who are licensed to use manual therapy, but they, they get almost none of the training in their, in their education. Many are um, learning on the job, laryngeal manipulation, or my sort of slower, nuanced, more gentle approach. They're licensed to do it. In the UK, it's like, you know, to me, it's the wild west. I don't really know your designations because none of them, you know, they don't make as much sense to me because I've not lived in that model for the last 35 years like I have as a physical therapist here in the States. You know, like I said, uh, it, Alexa, when I teach in the UK, I get a huge range of people attending from massage therapists, from physios, from speech therapists to a lot of voice coaches and, and some occasional ENTs coming in to take the class because they might be using it. But I also get a lot of voice coaches attending my workshops because they're interested in it. They want to know more about it. And even if it's just for an appropriate referral, I think that's a real viable reason to learn more. And can you, as a voice coach, as a singing teacher, can you see your way clear to begin to integrate some of the hands-on work into your work? Or my true wish, can you see yourself clear to begin asking for more shared decision-making in everything you do because this model I teach truly is about shared decision-making for everything we do. And I use it for my exercise-based patient. Instead of just saying, here's what's best for your low back pain, we work on it together to say, does this feel useful? Does it feel appropriate? Whether it's exercise, whether it's manual therapy, or even some of the cognitive behavioral-based work that we can do, does this feel useful for you, Alexa, for your problems? And that's where you know, I, my work gets messy because sure, I call it manual therapy, but it's this weird shared decision-making model of elevating the patient, the client to an equal role as myself. Mm. And that absolutely translates into the voice studio as well, because I think a, a lot of time, um, a lot of the time singers will come in and expect that whatever you give them is the right answer. Because as you said previously, you're the professional in that situation. Nobody knows your right. like you. So asking and telling the student, you know, just because I'm a teacher doesn't mean this is exactly the perfect exercise. Right. And I think that's where a lot of us, I'm going to include all of us, a lot of us, because of our training and maybe our degrees and certifications, a lot of us truly have difficulty letting go of our ego, that there are things that we don't know and what I what I'm fond of telling my patients when they when they struggle with the questions that I ask them and the role that I ask them to take as a shared decision making maker is basically I tell them I know a lot I have a lot of education training certificate all this stuff I, I've used this work for thirty plus years but no matter how much I know 
I don't know what you're feeling until you begin to participate. I don't know what you find of value, what you find potentially threatening or a waste of time until you start talking to me and telling me, which is why I'm so damn needy in my sessions and why I ask so many questions because yes, I know a lot, but I need to know what you feel. And that's why I, I think it takes a lot of letting go of our of our ego or at least tempering it and elevating the ego of the patient to a place where we're, we're occupying relatively equal power roles in this relationship. And it's not an easy task to get a patient to elevate themselves. And it's not an easy task to get a clinician to sort of compress down their ego so that they're willing to say, I know a lot, but I don't know what you feel. There are things that we can do to help students take that outside of the clinic and, and, and do something self-guided. And before we get into that, I just have a question about what's your favorite part of the body to work on? I've been a PT, a physical therapist since 1985. I've been doing this sort of manual therapy since 1992 when I called it mouthwash release. In somewhere along the line, well, the neck has always been my favorite, okay? Um, I really dislike when somebody comes in to see me for, not dislike, that's a wrong word, but I'm less, I'm less keen on somebody coming in for foot pain or back pain because it doesn't interest me as much. So my, my interest has always been in the neck area. And then about almost 10 years ago now, I got invited to teach a, 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 a one-of class in Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S. here for, for speech pathologists, along with an ENT who's written a lot on, on, on muscle tension dysphonia and the use of manual therapy. So we presented that class because someone read my stuff that I was writing on the Internet about this sort of this crossover between when I was working with a neck patient and poking around in the front of their neck and they started to talk to me about their voice issue or their swallowing issue that I knew nothing about, but I saw the overlap between my, my physical therapy world and the world of the speech pathologist or the voice clinician where we can be impactful by doing manual therapy in the laryngeal region or in general in the neck region. So that became the class that I now teach, the book that I'm in the process of, of finishing up on this work, et cetera. And this has, so it's, um, Alexa, I often have a very difficult time saying yes or no without a long explanation. This truly has become my favorite area to work in, not the part of the body, but the issues relating to voice, the issues relating to swallowing, to oral motor disorders, to tongue tension, just tongue related issues, to breathing issues, really the world of the classes that I teach now. Earlier this year, I stopped teaching live classes for the other professions, for physios, for massage therapists on my upper body, my lower body, my neck pain, my low back, all that stuff. Um, because this truly has become what I want to do for the, you know, at least this next part of my life and career is this voice and swallowing disorders type of work. Um, and getting on to the kind of self-guided stuff that we can do, um, you actually posted something on your Instagram recently, which I found quite interesting, which was a, a paraphrase of what a patient said to you, which was along the lines of how can I actually continue to improve without seeing you? I'd like to go into what the individual can actually be guided to do on themselves and when you would kind of intervene and encourage somebody to do something. Yeah. Oh, well, I would start that first session. Um, I, I, what I don't want to do is build a relationship of dependency. 
okay, of them needing me in any way. All right. One of the in in the physical therapy um, culture across the world, manual therapies in general have been sort of delegated to a lower level of um, of preference in our communities because they're seen as passive. They're seen as dependency building where you are dependent on me to get better. And I think there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of prejudice in there where, it, it, um, I'm sorry, where exercise is elevated to be an independence building. I think both, both can be dependency building if done improperly. But by all means, I want to bring this to you. If you're my new patient, I, I want to bring this to you from the first session because if there's ways that you can do this on your own without my help, isn't that what we're about? Even though we all need money, let's be crass about it, right? This is what we do for a living. Um, I would also like to empower you to take over and do as much of this as possible on your own. So it starts on the first session. And it starts not just for me teaching how to touch, but teaching you that maybe some of the reason you continue to have this voice tension is not because there's a problem in your tissues. It's part of what your brain and your awareness and your perceptions have built in that you have a problem and you need help to get rid of it or to keep it at bay, right? I wanna do everything in my power to be able to perform. So therefore I'm gonna spend all this time and money hiring people like you and me to assure that I don't develop a problem. Now let's face it, that's some of our clientele, right? They can afford us and they want us to be in, you know, in the wings there um, as part of their team, that's a hard thing for us to let go and for them to let go of. But I also want to let them know that, you know what, if at all possible, I don't want to make you dependent on me at all. And that means let's start this from from square one. OK, but here's here's a conundrum and we're going to get to what you asked for. Here's a conundrum because there's actual evidence out there to say that um, that self-touch and social touch taps into different parts of a person's brain. So when we touch ourselves, when whether it's simple touch or the touch that we're talking about here, parts of our brain are active or inactive that are very different than when someone else touches us. And a lot of that goes into the sense of prediction or lack of prediction when someone else touches us that te- that key into parts of our brain that are that are active that I want to be active for you to be paying attention in terms of creating top down behavior based approaches to voice or whatever it is. So there's an understanding, Alexa, that when I teach you self stretching, the impact may be different than when you and I do it together or when I do it to you. So I have to be cognizant that self-treatment, self-stretching, self-massage, or whatever you want to call it, may not have the same effect as me doing it with you, all right? So let's accept that for what it is. But can we create a stretch, an input, a poking, a prodding? Can we get to that chicken um, that I feel, that you feel is relevant in a way that not just I can do this with you, but you can take over the role, at least in part, by yourself? Mm. Do you take any visual signs as to what somebody might benefit from? Or has that now completely changed with taking on board more of this patient perspective? You mean visual signs in terms of feedback from the patient? Visible signs of like, ah, that shoulder seems higher than the other. Oh, okay. Um, Oh, do you want a whole nother podcast on on posture, (laughs) by the way? Um, Because, you know, I could talk your ear off for another, another hour on posture. And a lot of the demons that have been created mm-hmm. by us, by social media, by patient perspectives of, 
you know, the reason I have all these problems is because I've got poor posture or because I'm all wonky and asymmetrical. Um, do I take those cues? I see them. I can't unsee them because I used to think they were important. Um, mm. I can't unsee them, but I no longer reach out to you, Alexa, and say, look, look how high your shoulders are. Um, we need to fix that. Mm. Um, uh, this may sound a little bit a little bit wrong, but if you walk into my clinic and say, the reason I have a voice issue is because my posture is so poor. I am going to acknowledge your fears and beliefs as important without feeling like we have to fix your posture to help with your voice, okay? If you feel your posture is important, then I take it as important. If you feel like that's got nothing to do with it, then I may put that way down on the list of things that, that we address over time. And how, how slippery does that sound, what I just said? Um, I was taught that posture is crucial for pain, for strength, for function. And a lot of people believe that. There's a lot of really good evidence that show that when we fix, not fix is such a bad word, when we institute a change in head carriage over the torso, that voice often improves, correct? I mean, you've no doubt seen that literature which causes both clinicians as well as the public to view that I have forward head, therefore that must be the cause of my voice problem. But there's a whole lot of singers with pretty bad forward head who sing beautifully, who don't have problems. How do you balance that, right? Um, even if, even here's one of my favorite statements, even if, let's just stop right there, because even if we do something to bring your head in better alignment, and you sing more clearly or with less problem. What was it that changed? Was it posture alone? Was it strength? Was it muscle tightness? Was it cognitive behavioral awareness? What was it that changed when we when we changed your posture, that instituted that change? It's so complex, we'll never know. And you know what, Alexa, most people don't care. I bore the hell out of people because they don't care. Fix my posture so I can sing better, all right? Just if you if you want to really know what's going on, I'm really going to bore you because it's going to take a while to talk about the complexities of how human beings are wonky and how change is instituted. So posture is a whole nother topic. Does it matter? Sure, but maybe not in the matter that you thought. Mm, I guess it kind of goes also into that placebo, nocebo type thing. If, if somebody is adamant that it's to do with this thing and you work on it and they go yeah it's fixed it's a it's messy sticky stuff it really is which which is why both the public as well as clinicians just completely grasp onto simple single dysfunction stories the reason you're having a voice issue is because and then if it comes out it's a single story we we know immediately that the person is oversimplifying a very complex issue. And you know what? Patients come into me all the time with um, the reason I'm having a problem is because I'm weak, is because my posture is poor, is because I'm too tight, is because all of these single stories ensure that that could that that is your belief system. And the one thing I've learned is never, ever stomp on your beliefs because I'm gonna lose trust. Um, I need to figure a way to accept what you believe while still looking at other possibilities. And that's what my approach is about. What, the first thing I do is find out, well, what Alexa do you believe? Mm -hmm. Do you believe it's muscle tension? Okay, then let's do something about that muscle tension, understanding 
that muscle tension is incredibly complex. The paper that I love to, to point to is a 2017 paper by Nelson Roy. He's a, he's a PhD um, speech pathologist from the University of Utah who's, who's started in 1993 talking about muscle tension dysphonia as a problem of too much laryngeal tension. He basically took Arnold Aronson's writings from 1990 and translated into the literature where the reason a person is having muscle tension could be in part to too much tension, I'm sorry, muscle tension dysphonia, is too much tension in the perilaryngeal structures. And if you look at Nelson Roy's paper from 1993, all the way through the 2000s and into the 2010s, what you'll see is an evolution from, I call it the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas perspective. That you've got muscle tension, it's because of the tension in the laryngeal musculature. Let's, let's, adjust, let's manipulate that area and you sing better or you speak better. See, I was right, it's about too much local tension. To in the mid 2000s, him acknowledging the, while we think it's too much local tensions, it's in, in fact a cascade of issues that are neurocentrically driven. To a paper he published in 2017, which basically showed the in the in session changes via um, pre treatment MRI to post treatment MRI, where a person's brain activation change within session of laryngeal laryngeal manipulation, showing that well, it doesn't prove that it's not in the tissue that it's in the brain. It's showing the complexity of our work. It's showing the complexity of muscle tension dysphonia from the simple thought that it's too much tension to bottom up and top down um, influencers, which is how in outside of the voice field, manual therapy is being viewed today. Unfortunately, there's still papers in 2022 that are using the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas perspective. Mm. This might go off on a complete tangent here, but why do you think we need a source of blame when we are working in any field really like oh that hurts because of this or that's happening because of this why do we need to point blame at a particular muscle group or a particular habit do you think um oh gosh i think that's 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 there's so many reasons to explain that some of it is the need to be able to condense an issue into something into little manageable time chunks Let's face it, we've spent an hour chatting on the complexities and I could spend another 12 hours going deeper into it. We don't have time for that with a, with a new patient in their session or we'd never get to the work that we do. Um, I also think that, it, okay, so in my field, in my history, inevitably we're taking trainings from someone who's chosen to partition off a problem more simply, or at least not, it may not be simple because they explain it in a very complex sounding way but they choose to sort of put it in a silo where no, it is all about the muscle tension. No, it's about the fascial restriction. No, it's about your, you know, your past trauma in life, trauma-informed therapy. Everyone chooses a, a line of training that, that sort of shepherds you into this silo to say, you know what, it's probably this problem. And I, I think that's a big part of it. And we also have people coming to see us who've let's face it, they talk to Dr. Google all the time. And Dr. Google will send you down rabbit holes where to tell you, oh, no, it's, it's this problem. And this is the reason. It's really messy. And it's a spider web that we really have a difficult time getting away from. And, you know, when I when I teach, 
I think there's acknowledgement from most clinicians that they do understand that things are a lot more complex than we like to explain things. But how do you then translate that complexity into a little elevator speech of, you know, 90 seconds to three minutes to five minutes to explain that complexity to a to a patient, especially the first time person, um, in a way that doesn't make them fall asleep or make their eyes glaze over. And you also don't lose their trust. It's There's a real art form to evolving from simple narratives. And you know what? Art is learned over time, just like all of our professions. We learn over time how to translate that art to our consumers. And you know what? We err a lot in the beginning. We, 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 we stumble a lot in the beginning when we try to explain a complex problem in a simple way. Um, and one of my, you know, it, it does take time. And that's part of what I'm still learning and what I teach people um, when they come to take my classes. And not just me, there's a lot of really good people teaching these updated narratives. And even for laryngeal manipulation, that more assertive, aggressive way, I believe there's people who are beginning to see much beyond Las Vegas here in the throat that it is a human being we're interacting with and not their tissue and not their larynx and not their hyoid and all those things that patients, they still want to believe. Mm. Yeah. I completely resonate with Dr. Google, by the way, I had an earache yesterday and it says I'm going to die tomorrow. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you're really I, you know, I create, I create, uh, sorry, I, I create Dr. Google is starting at the trunk of a tree. And then, you know, you do a search. And if you picked maybe some, a search term that wasn't quite the right one, or even if you did, think of all the branches of those trees that go to the terminal branches, you know, on, on any tree that almost tens of thousands of tiny little branches. And that's where we end up on Google. Um, Well-meaning, we do our own research. We end up so far removed from the branch that actually contains the right answer for you that we, we're doing, we're, we're listening to information that doesn't even resemble what the actual problem is. We all do it, Alexa. You know, even when people who say they don't do that, no, I, I go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. We all do it. I did it the other day for some issues that I'm having. I'm mm. as guilty as you and I'm as guilty as every other person out there. Mm. It's interesting how far removed from ourselves we can get um, with yeah. it, as you say. Yeah. And you're kind of going to take us through some uh, something a bit more interactive, um, which has a practical element, and that's going to be over on our social media platforms. So you can actually, listeners, have a play along and, and move along with the visual. So thank you, Walt, for that. And you mentioned a paper just now. Have you got any other resources that you'd recommend us checking out on this topic? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Um, again, this is a this is a whole podcast in and of itself. But um, the resources it's it's interesting because some of the resources have are not from the manual therapy or the voice community. Some of the resources are in the field of psychology or philosophy. Um, it, it, I, I on my website, which is waltfritz.com, If you follow down on the page for any of my seminars, you're going to see a link to the research that I that I use to support my work. It's an ever-evolving um, list of hundreds of resources that some seem very niche and some seem so far removed. You wonder, how can that paper on philosophy or that book on philosophy relate to manual therapy? But um, I can link that if you have show notes from this podcast. I'd love to link that because rather than just say, here's one paper that you might find interesting, which is so myopic, it's like, you know, here, here's a lifetime worth of evidence that has built the approach that I use to 
inform who I am today. All right. And if you don't care that much, I'll try and highlight a few papers. How's that? Sounds great. Thank you. Well, okay. and we'll just get in touch with you via your website if they have any questions. Yes. Website, social media, any of those work. Um, you know, I'm I'm on all those platforms and I, I actually really love engaging personally with, with people one on one for questions, for complaints, for insults, all that stuff that we like to do on social media, you know. Yeah, I'm, excuse me, very easy to contact in those ways. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. And thank you for your time and all the good work you're doing here. So did that whet your appetite? Want more of where that came from? Then quench your thirst for knowledge by nerding out in our store where you can purchase a whole host of specialist educational videos for singing teachers, from building your business to fixing vocal faults. Or join our membership to get access to them all in your own geeky CPD library. Head over to www.basttraining.com forward slash store to get going. That's www.basttraining.com forward slash store.